If you've got a Bible, open with me to John 14. John 14, I'm going to start in verse 15. Uh, Next week, God willing, we will start a nine-week series on the fruit of the Spirit. I think I might have a slide up here. A nine-week series on the fruit of the Spirit. Would love for you to be a part of that. Would love for you to bring some guests, bring some friends. Um, We're going to be working from Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians. And we will devote uh, each a week to each of these nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit produces in us. And we'll spend a week, God willing, on each of these. And so as a sort of prologue to that series this morning, uh, I want to spend some time together discussing the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So what are we really talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit? I want us to anchor our discussion here in this passage, Jesus' own words in John chapter 14. Now, you may remember about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, we we went through the Gospel of John, uh, and we spent a little bit of time in this passage in John chapter 14, uh, but I wanted to tee us up again. I wanted to kind of prepare us again as we spend several weeks exploring the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us. So John 14, I'll start in verse 15. So this passage, uh, if you're familiar with it, this is just before Jesus's uh, betrayal by his friends. This is just before Jesus' crucifixion, obviously before his resurrection. Um, but he knows all this is coming. All of this is imminent. And so he speaks to his disciples. He gathers them around and begins to tell them these things. And here in verse 15 he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells within you. He will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. That's good news, right? I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. He's talking about his death. But you will see me. So there's this, there's this tension here, right? He's saying, I'm leaving, but I'm going to be present with you. You're not going to see me, but you will know me. Because I live in you, and you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 25. It says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. Which, which for us, you know, we've heard that statement maybe before, um, but again, picture what's happening right now in the context. This is Jesus um, telling his disciples about his death, about his crucifixion, about his departure. It seems like the least peaceful time possible. And he's gathering them together and he's saying, I'm going to give you peace. And the peace I give you, it's not as the world gives you peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, and don't be afraid. 
You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I am going to the Father. Again, he's, he's saying something that sounds a little tricky here. He's saying, it's actually a good thing for you that I'm going to the Father. You should rejoice at this departure because I will be more present with you. He says, I will come to you, and if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. I do as the Father has commanded, so that the world may know that I love the Father. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. God, just as you promised here, Holy Spirit, Teach us and guide us into truth. God, we love you, we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, um, a writer named Francis Chan wrote a book called uh, Forgotten God. And the subtitle of this book is called Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And obviously this book on the Holy Spirit struck a chord. I even just looked this morning, just to kind of refresh myself, over 1,200 five-star reviews. So he kind of hit on something that maybe many of us have been longing for. We, we've maybe heard about the Holy Spirit, and yet we don't really know what we're dealing with. And so he says this in his book, Forgotten God. He says, from my perspective, the Holy Spirit is tragically, tragically neglected. And for all practical purposes, the Holy Spirit is forgotten. While no evangelical would deny the Holy Spirit's existence, I'm willing uh, I'm willing to bet that there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say that they have actually experienced his presence or experienced his action in their lives over the past year or so. And many of them may not even believe they can. And yet as we read from the scriptures, we see that it is, it is the spirit of God who, who empowers us it's the Spirit who enlivens us, the Spirit who encourages us, the Spirit who compels us and instructs the church in our mission. Our mission to spread this great news that Jesus is alive and well and working. That's the Spirit's work in our life. And yet, He is, maybe for many of us, the forgotten God. And so hopefully we will refresh our memories this morning. So who is the Holy Spirit? Who or what are we talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit of God, when we talk about the Holy Ghost, when we talk about the Holy Spirit? First, the Holy Spirit is God. It's important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit, He is God. He is not a secondary God. He is not a tertiary God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is God, and He is God from the first pages of Scripture to the last pages of Scripture. Even in Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what does it say there in verse 2? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, making this, this formless void into ordered creation. The Spirit of God present even before creation. In Revelation 14, the last book of the New Testament, Scripture says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying this, Write this down, Blessed are those who have died in the Lord. 
Blessed indeed, says the Spirit of God, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds followed them. You see, throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, each of these divine, and we, we, we could read passages over and over and over again, but throughout all of Scripture, from first pages to the last, each of the divine attributes of God are applied directly to the Holy Spirit himself. He is noted as uh, omnipresent. He is noted as uh, with uh, omnipotence and omniscience. He knows everything. He is everywhere. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is, of course, eternal. And he is, as God, of course, holy. Christianity is, uh, unlike every world religion in, in many ways, one of those ways that it's unlike other major world religions is that we are Trinitarian, which is a big word, right? Christians are Trinitarian, meaning that we worship one God in three persons. That sort of blows our mind, right? I mean, it's hard for us to even organize our thoughts around that reality, that, that as Christians, we worship one single God, but who manifests himself to us in three persons, three distinct persons. Maybe you've heard the difference between uh, a contradiction and a paradox. You know the difference? A, a contradiction is something uh, that cannot be true. Right, so if I say something, and analogies always feel a little empty and these kind of things, but if I say something like, uh, I live in Texas, and I don't live in Texas, those are contradictory, right? You, you either do live in Texas, or you don't live in Texas. There's, there's no real gray area there, and you, you may be thinking of whatever nuances, but you get the sense, right? Some things cannot be true together, but a paradox, though, a paradox is something that seems contradictory, but is in fact actually true. So I'm thinking of something like, like, like my family is one, right? We are one unit. And my family is five. There are five of us in our family. You see, like when you say those statements, my family is one, my family is five, that seems like an apparent contradiction, and yet it's a paradox. Those, both of those things can be completely true. The Trinity is a paradox. When we confess this truth, when we confess this doctrine, this belief that our God, the God we worship, the one God, the creator God, the holy God, the God who saves us, he is one and he is three. That's not easy, right? But it's not, some of us, we have that analytical mind, and we're, try, we're just trying to solve the problem of that paradox, right? The Trinity is not a problem that we're trying to solve. It is a mystery that we celebrate as a church. Who wants a God that we can fully understand, Right? You may have heard me tell you the story before. Uh, there was a lecture that St. Augustine was giving to his students, and he's talking about the Trinity. He's giving them all these notes. He's opening the scriptures, uh, and, and a student raises his hand and says, uh, Pastor, I don't, I don't understand. I, don't, I, I can't make sense of all of this. And Augustine replies, of course, of course you don't. We're talking about God. His ways are not our ways. He is, he is beyond us. Karl Barth would say that God is not just man said in a loud voice. 
which we often think, what we think is that we, we somehow in our minds create God in our own image and in some ways with our own limitations. Instead of confessing the truth that God has created us in His image, that we reflect His grace and His goodness, but He does not reflect our limitations. The Holy Spirit, like the Father, like the Son Jesus, is God. He is creative. He is ever-present. He is life-giving. He is God. And second, even as you've already heard me say, the Holy Spirit is not an it, but a he. The Holy Spirit is a person. He, he is not a force. He is not an impersonal being or an impersonal power. He is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's what I think some of us kind of think about the Holy Spirit in those terms. Like, I think the Holy Spirit is leading me to, I just feel this thing in my gut. And not that the Spirit can never, never uh, relate to us in that way, but the Spirit has revealed Himself as God has revealed Himself through the Scriptures. And He, he leads us and He compels us and He draws us, but not as an impersonal force, but as the one who leads us into truth. You see that Jesus will use those exact words in John 14 and in John 16 that we just read, that he will teach us, that he will bear witness about me, that he will guide us into all truth. Jesus uses the, the personal masculine Greek pronouns that you wouldn't have expected. You would have expected him to use of a spirit neutral pronouns, but he doesn't. He confirms in us, and the scriptures confirm for us, that the Holy Spirit has an intellect. The Holy Spirit has emotion. The Holy Spirit has a will. The Holy Spirit teaches us. He testifies to us. He leads us. He guides us. He directs us in our life. He convicts us of sin. He speaks to us. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. I was, uh, this week, had a little bit of a crazy week. We, we moved houses this week, my family. Uh, my grandpa is in the hospital, many of you know. My mother had to go to the emergency room this week. There was a lot going on. And then I was, I was by myself for a few minutes, and I was just driving in my car, and I started to pray, and I, I really just, I didn't even have any words. Like, I don't even really know what I should be praying about. Should I be praying that, that they're all healed I want them to be healed, but God, maybe you know something that I don't, right? I want, I want this thing in my life to go easy, but is that the right thing I should be praying for? I don't know. And I just felt, in one of those moments with that the emotion and the stress and the just the, all this stuff going on, it was one of those times where I just realized, I am so thankful that the Spirit is praying for me. I don't even know what I'm supposed to pray for in this moment. But I'm trusting him, I'm trusting him that he is God, that he knows me, that he created me, that he, he knows all things, that he is all loving to me. <clears throat> he is a person to be known, not just an emotion to be felt. And of course, even as we're talking about this, we realize that the Holy Spirit, he is a great mystery. He is a great mystery. Mystery. Even Jesus himself in John 3 will say this, The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. One writer wrote this, The Holy Spirit leaves no footprints in the sand. The Spirit, like the wind, is elusive and it's mysterious, but nonetheless... The Holy Spirit is real, 
and marvelous. This is who the Holy Spirit is. He is a mysterious God. And so what does he do? What does he do? You see here in this passage, in the disciples' darkest moment, just hours before Jesus' death, Jesus promises his disciples that he will not leave them. He will not leave them as orphans, but instead he will ask the Father to give them, what does it say there? A helper. He says, I'm going to leave you. It's actually good that I'm leaving you, because when I leave you, I'm going to give you a helper. He will lead you. He will guide you. He will dwell within you. And that word helper, at least to me, uh, has always been somewhat misleading. Because honestly, when I think of a helper, I think of a kind of assistant. I think someone who's going to, to help me do what I want to do, someone who's going to do my bidding, someone who's going to essentially help me to further my own agenda. But that's not the idea here. The, the Greek word here in John 14, verse 16, is paraclete. Literally, one who is called alongside us, one who appears on another's behalf, an advocate for us. The Spirit is our advocate. He is our comforter. He is our counselor. Another way to translate this word paraclete is uh, an intimate friend. But a friend who is for us. A friend, a friend who steps in front of us to take what we deserve. And this, helpful, this, this helper is powerful in several ways. It's interesting here that, that, first of all, Jesus, when he says, I will give you a helper, um, there's actually two words in Greek that, that you could use for the word helper. One word is a, a, the, the, a, a thing of a different kind, right? So when he says, I'm going to give you another helper, what does he mean by another? Is it another of a different kind or is it another of the same kind? Those are two different words. Well, he uses the word that he is a helper of the same kind. So you could say something like another fruit and you could mean apple or orange. Or you could say another fruit and it's this kind of apple or this kind of apple. You either have one of a different kind or one of the same kind. And when Jesus says here to his disciples, I'm going to send you a helper, another helper, he's saying, I am going to send you another help, a helper of the same kind, of the same kind of helper that I am a helper to you. You see that? I, I am God present with you, Jesus says. I am present there with you. The Spirit is present with you. The helper will be a helper like Jesus is a helper. Not only that, but unlike Jesus, this helper uh, will not only be with us as Jesus was, but of course he will be what? In us. Constantly present. The disciples, that, that Jesus of course as God, um, had the uh, ability to be omnipresent, to be everywhere at once, but in, in descending to man, in, in taking on flesh, in becoming the person of Jesus, born in real history in real time, taking on the word becoming flesh, he, he located himself in history with real people in a real place at a real time. And so when his disciples were with him, they were with him. And when his disciples were not with him, they weren't with him in that same way. And so Jesus is saying, I love you boys. 
I am God. I am in the Father. You are in me. It's good for you that I go away because I'm going to send you another helper, a helper, a helper just like me, but unlike me, he will never be away from you. He will always be present. He will be, he will be with you in all moments, wherever you go, good or bad, he is present. Let me say something here too. As we've mentioned earlier, the Holy Spirit has been present since before the creation of the world. The Holy Spirit, he is eternal, but he has occupied different roles under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. Under uh, the, the Holy Spirit has a different role to play before Jesus' death and resurrection than after Jesus' death and resurrection. And you notice this, if you read the scriptures, if you just open it up and read it, you realize that the Spirit of God is present in the Old Testament, again, even from the first pages of the Old Testament, and yet, he doesn't really seem like the same guy as he seems in the New Testament, right? You see this tension, you see this development, you see this growth, growth, and so, so we confess together that the Holy Spirit has been present forever, that He is eternal, but His relationship to us was different under the Old Covenant than it is under the New Covenant. Let me give you just a few examples of this. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, before Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit was almost completely confined to the people of Israel. The work of the Holy Spirit was almost completely confined to the people of Israel. And it only came to a few people with significant power. And that power could be lost as we saw it lost in King Saul's life. And as even David prayed in the Psalms, he prayed that it would not be lost in his life. It would only come on a few people and with power that could be lost. It exercised under the Old Covenant. It seemed little, he, he exercised little power over Satan with no examples of casting out demons. The Holy Spirit resulted in little effective evangelism of the nations around the world. He was present, but he was present differently than he is under the New Covenant. Under the New Covenant, we see the Holy Spirit gives much more effectiveness to people in their ministry. Unprecedented gifts for ministry. Speaking and healing and generosity in ways that you just don't see before. We see much greater victory from the Spirit over the influence of sin in the New Testament. We see the Holy Spirit empowering believers to have victory over Satan and demonic forces. Many stories of casting out demons, even as we've already seen. We've seen that the Holy Spirit's work results now in worldwide evangelism. Every, every tribe, tongue, and nation are now affected by the Spirit's work. That all races, all nations are able to hear the gospel in power and to be united as one church to the glory of God. One writer, B.B. Warfield, he put it so beautifully. He says, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. So imagine this room, imagine going into this room, it's beautiful, there's so much, there's art on the walls, there's beautiful furniture, it's ornate, it's complex, it's amazing, but the lights are out. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lighted. And the introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not there before. 
turning on the light doesn't create the beauty of the room, right? But it illuminates it. It illuminates it. He says it brings out into clearer view what was in it already only dimly or not at all perceived. And so thus the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by this fuller revelation which follows in the New Testament, but is only perfected, extended, enlarged, enlightened, illuminated. That's what we see with the Spirit. After Jesus' resurrection, as he gives him, as we read in John 14, as he gives his disciple, disciples this helper, it's like someone turn on the lights. And you begin to see this powerful work of God in the Spirit. Under the New Testament, the Holy Spirit illuminates what was hidden in the shadows in the Old Testament. Jesus also says here in John 14, verse 26, the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. He will bring to remembrance all that Jesus said. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. And so in this way, Jesus' departure could be understood with joy. There is power here. Because of Jesus' death, we will have God's permanent ever-presence. He will indwell us. He will empower us with new gifts beyond our own strength. He will pray for us, as we've said. He will remind us who we are and whose we are. Paul says in Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption. Those are two powerful images, right? So you can either live under this fearful spirit of slavery, not your own, under bondage to sin, locked up, chained up, not free, or you could be given the spirit of adoption. And what a, what a beautiful image, right? You're brought, you're brought into the family. It's not about who you are. It's about who, who dad is. He just brings you close. He gives you a name where you had no name before. He gives you a family where you had no family before. He gives you a purpose and a meaning where you had none before. He gives you a beautiful future where your future was grim before. It's not a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption that God gives. And so we cry to him, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, it says, bears witness with our spirit that we are, of course, children of God. And not only this, but the Holy Spirit, he is our source of real and lasting peace. Jesus says there, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, he will bring to remembrance, peace I leave you. My peace, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give, so let your hearts not be troubled and don't be afraid. We've talked about this word. This word peace comes up uh, throughout the Old and New Testament. You, you may have heard the word shalom. So it's not, just, it's not just that things are okay, but it's that things are as they should be. It's, it's rightness. It's wholeness. It's, it's the world as God made it. That's what peace is. It's this peace that, that Paul says, it passes all understanding. It's not based on your circumstances. 
I'm sure for many of you, even this week, if you look back at your week or in the midst of your week, you think, my circumstances gave me no reason for peace and joy. And yet as a Christian, we can have peace and joy in spite of those painful circumstances. It's anchored in the knowledge and trust of who God is, of what God can do, of what God knows. It's unlike anything the world offers. Donald Guthrie says, this is a kind of peace that's been put to the test. It's not like the world's peace. One writer says, the deepest want of man is not a desire for happiness. Hear this, church. The deepest desire of man is not a desire for happiness, but a craving for peace. We're desperate for it. Happiness is fleeting, right? Joy and peace are lasting. It's not a wish for the gratification of every desire, but a craving for rest in the will of God. That's what we long for. That's what we ache for. And it is this which Christianity promises. Christianity does not promise happiness. But it does promise peace. And there's a big difference. I read an article recently uh, from the Washington Times by Jennifer Harper. And it was one of those lists that you see often about... um, you know, the, the best cities to live in or the richest cities or the most expensive or the best health care or the best place to retire. And this was a list of nations based on happiness. And the way that they uh, can quantify a country's happiness, they made their list. And the United States was the 114th happiest nation. I'm not a math guy. But that doesn't sound great, right? And that's not how we think of America, many of us. And yet, just let that sink in. That's not very peaceful. 114th. Jennifer Harper wrote this this deterioration of America's happiness. It's driven by this growing intensity and eternal conflict, which we saw uh, in spades in the divisive 2016 presidential election. It increases in the perception of of criminality across American society, the the impact of rising homicide rates in in many American cities, terrorist attacks even on American soil. For many in America, America has not delivered on that American dream. It just hasn't. We are a nation without peace, in a world without peace. The world offers peace based on positive circumstances, and it can't even deliver on that promise. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you a different kind of peace. His peace provides a kind of contentment and a rest and an assurance, a kind of security when everything else is going crazy. When you're in the boat in the midst of the storm, when it feels like your your life is a house of cards, when it feels like relationships are strained, money is strained, health is strained, just life sort of pulling at the edges, that the world would say, you got no reason to be happy in those moments. But Jesus said, I don't give peace like the world gives it. Even in those moments, maybe even, and you've experienced this, hopefully some of you, especially in those moments, 
You're clinging on to something greater because you're, you're forced to, to be pulled out from yourself. You know, it's easy for us when things are easy to sort of think, you know what? I'm a pretty smart guy. I've made some good decisions. Things are going well. You know, I kind of look back and think, yeah, of course, right? I pulled this off. I can, I can swing it. You know in your head that it's God who's gracious and providing and giving, but you get comfortable. You get confident in yourself. And then things fall apart. And you go, I got nothing. I, got no, I, can't, I don't know how to fix this thing. I, I, don't know what, I don't know what I'm going to do about this financial situation. I have no control over this health concern, this, that my, whether it's my children or my parents or what, my, my relationships. Like things are just not working. And I, the confession comes, I can't fix it. And so even in the midst of the, that desperation, we are, we are compelled to Christ. We are compelled to the Holy Spirit, compelled to the Father. And as we cling to God, we even in those moments, maybe again, even especially of those moments, we say, it's better for me to trust in God than to trust in myself. It is truer it is more right for me to trust in god than to trust in myself trusting in myself is a delusion trusting in god is the deepest security i could possess jesus actually promises trouble in this world and yet he also promises peace This is the power and the peace that passes all understanding. And Jesus says here, and this again, it feels interesting to me. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to give you, not only does he say I'm going to give you peace, but what does he say? I'm going to give you my peace. One writer put it this way, your peace, Jesus, they're about to kill you. You're about to be betrayed by all your friends. You're about to be tortured. You're about to be humiliated. What do you mean your peace? I don't want your peace. I want a different kind of peace. What kind of peace is that that you have, Jesus? It's perfect peace with the Father. He says, tomorrow I will go to the cross... And there I will open the door for my sheep to enter my peace with my Father. Jesus, through his suffering, satisfies his justice. He says, I will purchase your forgiveness. I will provide your righteousness. And I will bring you into the very peace that I enjoy with my Father. That's what he says, right? I am in the Father. You are in me. I am in you. I'm trying to bring you into this, this perfect, holistic, peaceful relationship. You've not been given the spirit of slavery. You've been given the spirit of adoption. I'm bringing you in. And how does he do that, church? Just as we sang earlier, through his suffering. Jesus, who in perfect glory in heaven 
who for, for every rightful reason in the universe, every reason conceivable, he, he was the only one who had the right to live in perfect peace. And yet motivated exclusively by love, by his love for us, to say, I'm going to leave my perfect peace and I'm going to descend into their suffering so that through my suffering, they might enter my peace. This is the story of the gospel, folks. This is the good news of the gospel. If you're looking for this world to be happy, you've got a lifetime of disappointment. If you're looking for this world to be easy, you have bought into a lie. Maybe some of you are even young enough and idealistic enough to think that like, you're smart enough to avoid pain, or at least the big kinds. And Jesus says, this world doesn't work right because of sin, and so I'm going to redeem it. You don't work right because of sin, so I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to transform all this pain through my suffering into your peace. Today is a day that we celebrate that we are not orphans. but We have been invited into this new forever family with the Father. Trust in Jesus this morning. Look to Jesus this morning. Know his peace. Experience that peace. You may be thinking, this just seems so ridiculous. How could you have peace in the midst of profound suffering? That's the story of the gospel. In fact, I would, I would challenge you, I would, I would ask you, can you even, have you ever heard a story? Have you ever heard a story? Have you ever learned a doctrine? Have you ever studied a religion that, that offers you a better answer to the problem of suffering? I don't think you have. I don't think you have. The gospel and the story of Christ on the cross for us is what makes sense of all our pain and gives us hope for the future. Consider him this morning.